right, we're in Mark chapter 4, still working our way through the parables that are found there. Uh, Today we're going to be in uh, verses 26 through 29. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But whether the grain is ripe at once, sorry, but when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we ask uh, now that you would send the same Holy Spirit uh, who inspired this word uh, to open our hearts to its truth, remove from us apathy, cynicism, callousness, or rebellion, so that we may really be hungry for this bread of life that feeds our souls, nourishes our hearts. Uh, So, uh, for your work that fills us with joy, uh, that is our strength. And we ask this for the honor and glory of your dear Son, Jesus, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you have children, it almost inevitably occurs that they will ask from whence they have come. And some parents take the easy way out and, and bring up the story of the stork who carries the child uh, to the parents who are sitting there at home waiting. Um, But if we're honest, uh, we recognize that uh, aside from what happens at the very beginning, for most of human history, what happened before birth was very mysterious. Uh, People didn't really understand until we had things like microscopes, what actually went on within Uh, the body of a woman. You could see the external changes that took place. Uh, In fact, uh, this week uh, I was at the gym and there's a a number of people that I see regularly there. I I recognize them. I don't know them. Uh, But one of them is a young woman and I realized, oh, she has a baby bump. Have mercy on this woman. Because I know that she has three rather rambunctious children, boys, uh, that sometimes are there with her. So, uh, yeah, children, we don't see. And sometimes we have, um, oh yeah, over here. Uh, we don't see until the belly begins to extend and sometimes the foot starts to press against the side. Um, but it's, it's very mysterious how it was, at least, very mysterious as to how that life came to be kind of leads me into where Jesus is here as he's talking about how does the kingdom grow? He's been talking through these parables about the kingdom. And so Jesus tells an additional parable on that subject. Uh, Now, let's keep in mind here something, uh, that each parable contains truth, but no one parable contains the whole truth on the subject. Uh, rather, truth is sort of like a diamond. And if, uh, if you look at a diamond, uh, you, you see that a diamond has many facets. 
Okay, there's many aspects to the glory of the diamond, uh, and so truth has many aspects to it. Uh, God sees each fact in connection with every other fact or thing there is to know. And so uh, when Jesus is speaking these different parables, he's hitting different aspects about the kingdom. They're not contradictory aspects, uh, but he's he's showing increasing light, shedding increasing light upon the truth of the kingdom. Not contradictory light, but complementary light. And that's very important for us to keep in mind. Uh, But the truth is complex like a diamond, And that was one of the most helpful things for me, reading A.A. Hodge on the Atonement, where he used this illustration of a diamond. That's where I picked it up. So now it's mine forever, according to Steve Brown. Um, But it's helpful to think of truth that way, and that it's very complex. And and something like the Atonement, there's many aspects to it. And if we just focus on one, we miss the rest, and we miss the grandeur of God's truth, the meaningfulness of of God's truth. So Jesus continues with another parable and he starts, the kingdom of God is as if. And I want to stop there precisely because I want to reemphasize that Jesus is speaking about the kingdom of God. And the context of that matters not just in terms of how we uh, interpret the rest of what he says, but I want us to remember this is about the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God is, is the people, not necessarily the place, but the people who are ruled by Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus is speaking about his domain and how his domain is going to grow. That's important for us to keep in mind. This idea of a kingdom. These people lived while they were in Judea. Uh, They were part of the Roman Empire. Every empire or kingdom uh, on earth has borders. Every kingdom has a leader. Every kingdom had some sort of administrative structure to hold those people sort of together and moving in the same direction. And every kingdom either grew or contracted. It might not be the borders, it might be the population. Uh, One of Asher's online courses uh, for ancient history, uh, we played, I I can't remember which king it was. Oh yes, it was um, Hammurabi. We played Hammurabi. And we had to determine how much of the grain got replanted, how much was eaten, and how much, I can't remember the other thing was. And then it would do um, this calculation, this algorithm, and it would tell you how many of your people died or you know, how many more grew, how your population changed based on your decisions. Okay? So the, the, the decisions of the administration of a kingdom affect the, the not just the borders of a kingdom, but how well or how poorly the people within the kingdom do. And we recognize this in many ways. Kingdoms have both citizens and subjects. Sometimes those are identical, but not all the time. Um, All who are under the rule of a particular government or king are subjects 
of that king. They are subject to the laws of that king, that government. And some of the people who live uh, uh, under that rule are also citizens, which mean they have special privileges and special rights, and there's nothing wrong with the word privilege in this particular context. Citizenship has its privileges, uh, not just when you have the right credit card, or some of you might say the wrong credit card. I don't care, don't have it. Um, Rome, for instance, was an enormous empire and had who knows how many subjects, but citizenship was something that was special and rare. Uh, You could be born into citizenship, which the Apostle Paul was, had his citizenship by birth. Uh, we're not sure how his parents got that citizenship. It could have been uh, that his, fa- his parents bought that citizenship, and you could buy your citizenship uh, for Rome. Or you could earn your citizenship through military ex- uh, experience, service. So there are different ways in which one became a citizen of the empire of Rome. And the reason I'm talking about this is I want us to think about the kingdom of Jesus and how one becomes a citizen of of that kingdom is fundamentally different than how someone becomes a a member citizen of any other kingdom. Uh, Because we're all born uh, into the domain of darkness. And it's, it's only when the Father qualifies us through his grace in his son Jesus Christ, uh, that we enter into the kingdom of his beloved son, which is also the kingdom of light. And so it's by grace through faith uh, that people enter into this, the kingdom of Jesus. Uh, they can't buy their way in. And though we believe in uh, the covenant community that extends to the children of believers, we're good Presbyterians, okay, we're good Reformed people, we don't think that they're automatically saved by the fact that they're born into our family or, in our case, uh, largely adopted into our family, okay? They must believe. You can't earn your way into Jesus' kingdom. There's no way to obey enough uh, that now all of a sudden you've done enough good stuff, you've crossed the line. The immigration policy, so to speak, of the kingdom of Jesus is fundamentally different from any other kingdom on earth. It is fully by grace through faith in Jesus and what he has done for us. But let us not forget that we are not just citizens of the kingdom, as Paul teaches us, as well as Peter, but we're also subject to his law. That we're under the authority of his law. That he intends to govern our lives. And so grace is not contrary to the the notion, the, the reality of the fact that Jesus is Lord, is above us, has authority over us, can tell us how we should and should not live. Grace does not mean that all of that is erased and you're free to do whatever you want. But you come. And discipleship is in part 
that coming under the authority of Jesus to learn how to live. Because the way in which you lived before was all messed up. That was one of the things that was very clear to me uh, when I became a Christian in college. Uh, I, I had begun to see some of the fruit of my choices and realized it was pretty bad fruit. And, and that was part of my first prayer to God. You know, I, I don't know where it came from. It must have been the Holy Spirit. But show me how to live because I'm making a mess of my life. And so the disciple is one who recognizes not just the greatness of Jesus, but the destruction they've brought upon themselves with their choices and says, okay, it's time for your way instead of my way. All right. The Creator knows best how we are to live because He made us. And we're just trying to figure it out. And we often choose poorly. So citizenship, as we see... On the basis of grace, Colossians 1, but we come under authority as well. We see that Jesus continues his parable when he says, uh, A man, okay, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and the seed sprouts and grows. Now, what's interesting about this parable, I mean, this is lean, mean, this is bare skeleton information that goes on here. Uh, He uses a a, a verb that indicates there's a one-time sowing in this case, and we're going to get to that in in just a a little bit. Um, But Jesus seems to be ignoring everything else that a farmer does, because it's not about the work of the farmer. Okay? Yeah, farmers fertilize, farmers plow, uh, farmers irrigate, farmers... uh, some might weed. Okay, they do a number of things after they sow or before they sow in order for the crop to be uh, plentiful. Okay, uh, these, these are things that they do on a regular basis, but not all at the same time. As we heard from Isaiah 28, uh, you, you change what you do. You don't keep sowing. I'm a farmer. I just sow. That's all I do. Sow. No, there's a time to plow, but you can't keep plowing because if you keep plowing, what you sowed ain't going to grow. So there's a time to plow, there's a time to sow, there's a time to irrigate, and there's a time, as we will shall see, to harvest. That's, all of that is extraneous to Jesus' point, which is why he doesn't mention it. He's focusing on how it grows, and he says that the seed sprouts and grows while it's in the earth. The power of life is in the seed. Just as the power of the kingdom is in the message of the kingdom. As Paul says in Romans 1, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for those who believe. The power is God's and it comes through the gospel and it's received by those who believe this message that Jesus reigns, that Jesus obeyed, that Jesus died for sins, not his own, but for ours, and that Jesus was raised again on the third day, that Jesus now has been ascended into heaven and sits at God's right hand. That message of the reigning Jesus has power to save people, power that it receives from God. 
And so the, the, the kingdom spreads, the kingdom grows, not through the labor of men, but by the power of God that comes through this message of the kingdom. We sow. This man sows, but he knows not how it grows. How it grows was, lar- was largely hidden from him. You know, he might see it sprouting up, but he doesn't know how. He doesn't know why, what, what takes place. And he has to recognize that the life, the power of life, was in the seed itself. And similarly, the people who are heralds of the message are to faithfully proclaim that message. They, they sow, so to speak, but they must trust Jesus to exert His power through the gospel for the growth of the kingdom. In other words, growth is not about using the right programs or the right methods. pastoral ministry is not the um, never-ending search for the right program. If only we get the right program, we'll grow. It's not the never-ending search for the right method. We, We have to recognize that it is God preserving and proclaiming, well, sorry, we preserve and proclaim this powerful message from God. That ultimately the, the growth of the kingdom and the growth of any particular church is tied inextricably uh, to the, its faithfulness to the gospel message. And I'm talking about real growth. Okay? Um, we see all around us churches or cults that can look really big, but the kingdom isn't growing there. Because they're not preaching the message. They're getting people attracted to programs. Nothing wrong with programs. Okay? Please don't hear me as I am, Steve is anti-program. That's, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying is where does our trust lie? What are we depending on? As we think about discipleship and the Vine Project uh, that's meeting monthly, we're, we're talking about how does, the, how does it grow but what's, okay, the vine, but a vine does need a trellis to grow properly. And so what is the structure? What are the programs that we're going to utilize in order to help there to be healthy life in this particular vine? But it's not like there's only one trellis that fits every church. But we want to focus on the fact that we are to preserve the gospel. We are also to proclaim the gospel, believing the gospel, to be the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. And so the kingdom of Jesus grows not through the efforts of men, but through the power of his gospel. How does the kingdom grow? And by this I mean, uh, why does it take so long? Maybe I should go, I should ask, how how is it that the the kingdom grows so slowly? Jesus likely uses this farming metaphor to also portray the investment of time that is necessary. See, we see Paul, like Jesus, utilizing uh, 
this agricultural imagery. We see it in 1 Corinthians 3, which we heard from. Um, you know, I sowed, Apollos watered, but hey, by the way, guys, it's God who gives the growth. Okay? Similar to what we said in the first point. Okay? In 2 Timothy 2, he, he wants Timothy to think about this, that it's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. He, Paul again, you know, repeatedly uses these agricultural things to, to let us know, th- to know more about what ministry is. There's something about what goes on here in this parable. Time passes. The verb tense that he uses for um, this person... Um, sleeping and rising, night and day, indicates this is a repeated, ongoing kind of thing. The time is passing. The, the, there was a day to sow, and now there's the passage of time. The Hebrew understanding of night and day, okay? Instead of day and night, which we tend to think of it, night and day. Time is passing. The crops do not spring up overnight, fully ripe, ready for harvest. Uh, there is this time of waiting. Babies don't emerge, back to our opening illustration, uh, you know, in a moment. We see the passage of time, and ideally it's nine months. But we begin with the zygote. If we found that on Mars, doctors would go, life, life, life. Um, but that's like four days after conception. Okay. We see the, the, the multiplying of cells uh, that has begun to take place. Okay. We, we don't see this normally. It's hidden within a woman's body, but there it is. Life has taken place, and life is growing, and, and then we see differentiation with the embryo. Whoop, I'm must have missed one. Huh. Oh, well. So now, we've, now we're near the end. <laughs> I thought I had another slide in there to show the progression of what takes place. Maybe they got out of order. Uh, but, you know, human being, it doesn't look like cells. Now the cells have differentiated, and we see human being. It was all human being all along. But now it looks like it. But still, this is hidden from us until recently, now that we have all these nanotechnology cameras that can see things. And, and it's, it's, it's wonderful when we begin to understand how God brings about life within the womb. Jesus uh, talks about this in a sense when he talks about first the blade, then the ear, and then the full grain in the ear. There is a progression of life that takes place for the grain, whether it's uh, corn or wheat, barley, uh, any of the things that are growing there. It's interesting to me that John Newton has famously used this verse uh, as, uh, to explain growth towards Christian maturity. Um, some of you ladies have read uh, uh, Barbara Duguid's book, Extravagance Grace, and she talks a lot about that from Newton. Uh, she brings a lot of that uh, in that book. Uh, if you read Tony Renke's book on the Christian life and the life of John Newton, you, you see he brings that up as well. Um, it's great stuff. It really is. 
It's accurate stuff in terms of its understanding of what the Christian life looks like and, and how we grow and change and mature and what the different stages are like. Um, but I'll say this, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Yes, the, the more we understand Jesus and who He is, the more we understand the, what He did for us upon the cross and what the implications of the resurrection and the ascension, the more we understand these things, the more our trust is going to be in Jesus Christ and the more we're going to grow or mature. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. Some have argued that he's talking about stages in the kingdom and they try to, you know, historically look at it and, uh, as if we could kind of say, well, you know, this period is uh, up until um, Constantine and this period is uh, referring to from Constantine until the Reformation and this period. Th-. No, that's not what it is either. It's not what it is. The point is, again, gospel produced growth. That there is a progression. The kingdom is going to grow. Um, It's going to take time. Uh, But unlike with a baby or unlike with crops, it is an indetermined amount of time that it will take. But what I want us to also think about as we look at this is that Jesus, again, since he's Because he is talking about gospel-produced growth, he is eliminating any idea of humanity somehow ushering in some golden age, some utopian paradise. Whether you want it to be Thoreau or Karl Marx or any other political thinker, humanity by itself will not achieve any form of utopia. What might be utopia for the ruling class is generally not utopia for the rest of the population. We're talking here about a different kingdom that's fundamentally different from every other kingdom we've ever known, and that is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus. And it's His gospel that brings change and growth. Jesus and Paul after him wanted the disciples or citizens or subjects, we're all three of those things, to be patient as the kingdom grows. Why do I say that? I believe it was Eugene Peterson who said that the besetting sin of pastors is impatience. And I can testify I know a lot of pastors, and I know myself. I can testify that this is true. We want change yesterday. We struggle with how long it takes sometimes for churches to grow. And and often churches are like the stock market. They go up and down, up and down, up and down. We want straight up, baby. Baby. And that's not what God does. Sometimes elders get very frustrated because the pastor has not accomplished this. It happens. I've seen it happen. We live in a microwave society. I mean, we kind of joke because Jaden, when she reheats leftovers, she does it like my mom used to do. 
she likes to do it on the stove with a little bit of water. And for her, that's like, uh. And for me, it's like, no, no. Because I remember my mom always put too much water in the pot. Because she was afraid that, you know, there'd, there'd be some burning going on. So too much water. And all the leftovers were watery. And so when we got a microwave when I was a teenager, it's like, yeah, I don't have to worry about that problem anymore. But it was instantaneous. Okay, 30 seconds, a minute. That's a whole lot better than 5 to 10. But we live in this society now where everything seems instantaneous. How many of you remember internet in the late 90s? Ding, 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 ding. The, the loud, annoying thing when you had to dial up on your phone. Okay, kiddos, here's one of the fun things. Some families had a phone line dedicated to the internet because you couldn't be on the phone and on the internet at the same time and you get frustrated because you can't be on the internet you know surfing and and uh, you know binging on your Netflix and playing uh, video games at the same time because it bogs down the system oh you've got it so good baby we struggle with impatience and one of the places we struggle with impatience is the growth of the kingdom. But it's not just, uh, it's not just our impatience. It's not just our, our sinfulness as we look at the kingdom. But often we're looking in the wrong places. See. Just as the gospel, the gospel does not produce instantaneous growth, uh, the, it also doesn't produce growth in the same places at the same time in the same direction. We tend to be focused upon our culture because that's who we are. We can't, you know, our minds are limited and we can't really think of how the gospel is progressing in other parts of the world. We see it in our own community. We see it in our own country. And when it's waning there, we become all pessimistic. Oh, there's something wrong with the gospel. There's something wrong with the kingdom of God. And we don't recognize that the gospel is making great strides and leaps and bounds in Asia, in Africa, in South America. Uh, You know, we tend to think of Europe and America and, and there the gospel's in big trouble, the kingdom rather is in, is in big trouble. But in other parts of the world, most of the world, it's progressing greatly. Rejoice. We now have the ability to see this more often. Rejoice that Jesus is working out the growth of his kingdom according to his plan, according to his timetable. And being a disciple and a subject means that we submit to that ordering. For instance, you could have been born in China. One of you was. If you were born in China, there's, I mean, maybe you're a Christian, maybe you're not. Depends on your access to be able to hear the gospel message. Um, and if you are a Christian, and, and there are many Christians, and it's growing prolifically there, but there's also the greatness of the persecution. And so here, we don't have the persecution at this point, but we do have the prosperity, which tends to, as we saw from the parable of the sower, choke out life in the church. You didn't choose 
which of those things you experience. God in his wisdom chose for you and placed you there. And so you are here in America dealing with the problem of prosperity as opposed to the problem of persecution by the providence of God. And so thank him for his kindness even as you recognize perhaps your own sinful response to where he's put you with your impatience um, with others or yourself. So the gradual growth of the kingdom requires patience. How long will the kingdom grow is really another question that comes up when we think about this passage. Um, And people continually try to figure out when Jesus is going to return for his people. Okay? Uh, Got an email this week. We see that Jesus addresses this slightly when he says, but when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Okay, there's two aspects of this. One is there's a time when the grape is ripe, or the grain is ripe, rather, and that's the moment when he puts in the sickle. Not before, not after. Uh, There is a precise, proper time in which he is going to put in the sickle. And so uh, the sower pays attention to the growth of the crop. And so it becomes a question of of ripeness and being ready for harvest as assessed by the sower. What's interesting about this phrase, put in the sickle, is that it's often used or mostly used in the sense of judgment. For instance, Joel chapter 3, verse 13, put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Sounds great, doesn't it? Go in, tread, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their evil is great. Not so good. We see in, even in Revelation 14, And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. And so he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. What I want us to see is that this day of harvest is a day of darkness and a day of light. That there's not two days that are in view. I know some views of the end of of history have two days, but from these passages and others, One day, he harvests both the righteous and the unrighteous at the same time, has both stand before his throne, separates them so that the the righteous by faith come into his presence with joy and the others are sent outside 
But we see that when the harvest comes, Jesus comes with his angel army, with his army of resurrected saints, and he brings judgment on the nations as well as the preservation of his people who have joined him in the air. Now, in his earthly ministry, Jesus said he didn't know when this was going to happen. He said, only the Father knows. Sometimes people try to predict on the basis of signs they see in the Olivet Discourse. Uh, But what we see in the Olivet Discourse is that there are signs for one thing and no signs for another thing. How are we to make sense of that? Well, the signs, I believe, are pointing to what happened in A.D. 70 with God's judgment upon Jerusalem, the ending of the old administration of the covenant once and for all, and the time that, has, uh, that Jesus is referring to where it comes like a thief in the night with no signs to let you know about it, that is when he returns at the end of time. From our perspective, the end will come suddenly and unexpectedly. As Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse, it's like the days of Noah. People are going to be given in marriage and taking in marriage, and they're going to go on celebrating and doing, living life normally, and boom, there it is. Unexpectedly. What date setters tend to do is focus on one particular culture or region, just as we saw uh, you know, the, the, the people who worry about the growth of the kingdom. Jesus is looking at the whole world, not just part of the world. It's interesting, when you, when you look at church history, North Africa produced so many of the early church fathers. So many of the great theologians of the church, Augustine, Cyprian, a lot of them were North Africans. But you look at North Africa today, and it's, it's mostly Islam. It's, they're, they're, all of those countries are run by Muslims. And so there's, there was a shift. Of, there was a time of great growth and prosperity within the church in North Africa, and now it's a place where the church is largely persecuted and quite small and seemingly insignificant. Europe, for a time, was Christendom, that word that some people don't like, and it's, I don't even know why we even use it. I don't even understand what it means uh, sometimes. But the, the, Europe was where it was happening for the church for a long time. You have Martin Luther, you have John Calvin, John, you know, all of these other guys, John Owen. The, the church prospered greatly in many ways in Europe, but now it's all secular. You're hard-pressed to find someone who knows who John Calvin really was or who Martin Luther really was. So it is with the passage of time. The gospel prospers in a place and diminishes in a place. But that doesn't mean the gospel has, doesn't mean the kingdom has disappeared. It's just changing the face of another place, like Central Africa, Asia, South America. We can't figure out when the harvest will be, but Jesus knows now when it will be. And Jesus will only come at the right time. 
And so we don't need to be impatient with Jesus, somehow thinking he, he's not on the right timetable. And usually that means my timetable, which means I'm forgetting that I'm a subject of his kingdom, not the ruler of his kingdom. Here's the good news, folks. God is God, and you're not. So you don't have to worry about it. It's freeing in many ways. So anyway, the third answer to our third, the answer to our third question, rather, is when the kingdom is ready, Jesus will judge the nations. And so whether you're, you're, worry, you're weary rather because you're working too hard for the kingdom and you're not sure why it's growing, there's an answer. And that answer is it grows through the power of the gospel, not your weariness. If you're weary because you're kind of going, you know, how long, what's going on here, Jesus, uh, you should be refreshed by the fact that the gradual growth of the king, kingdom is going to take place, even though it requires patience of you. If you're weary because you see disrepair in the kingdom, I, I want to encourage you and refresh you with the knowledge that when the kingdom is ready, Jesus will judge. It's going to be okay. So if we wrap all these things up, we see that Jesus patiently employs the growth, or sorry, rather empowers the growth of his kingdom until judgment. That should refresh you. Because it's not about what you do. Life is mysterious. Ideally, from conception to birth is nine months uh, as the fetus or baby grows. Fetus is just a medical term for baby, by the way. Okay. Organs are formed. They begin to function. And then it's full and ready. When the time is right, the baby comes forth. Life has this mysterious power that we still don't really understand, even though we have pictures of. Well, the kingdom grows because the gospel has God-given power in itself. Its growth is mysterious to us. We want to understand it. We want to control it. But we can't. We must be patient as God unfolds His purposes as the kingdom grows. When the crop is ripe and ready, there will be a harvest. Those who trust in Christ will be raised to glory and those who refuse to believe will will be going to judgment. The mysteries of the kingdom are a matter of life and death. So where does your hope lie? Is your hope lying in the kingdoms of men? Is your hope lying in a kingdom that you can control? Or is your hope in the kingdom of God that he controls and graciously invites you to partake of? Let's pray. Father, we're so arrogant. We are so prone to think it's all about us. Um, that we're the only ones who matter in your kingdom. That 
what we do is what determines the, the rising or falling of your kingdom. Oh, set us free from our foolishness. Set us free from our wearying behavior. Help us to recognize that the, the, the kingdom grows by your power. That we're just people who sow, people who water, people who fertilize. What really matters is Jesus, who is the king, and will bring his kingdom to fruition and fullness at the right time. And so set us free from our um, self-centeredness. Help us to enjoy what we do experience of this kingdom. And to enjoy our king because he's the only good king that there is. And we ask this in his name. Amen.